0: This message was presented at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Okay, let's um, let's get moving. Um, I'm particularly excited about this next presentation. We're going to be looking at Genesis, asking, should we still take Genesis seriously? Thank you, and I'm hoping that um, afterwards, when we finish, we can have extended time for more Q and A. I know there's a lot of questions we didn't get to this last time, or that we may want to revisit. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we can jump in talking about Genesis. Fathers, we stop right now and spend some time thinking about Genesis. Going back. We're just reminded of the fact that as we travel backwards, back before the creation of all, we find you, Father, Son, Spirit, existing in loving community. What an awesome reality, that the foundation of a reality itself is you and your love. Father, help us to grow in that love, grow in appreciation of who you are, and better communicate the reality of you to those who don't yet have that confidence in you. In of Christ we pray. Amen. Here we go. Should we still take Genesis seriously? So you may have seen some critiques like this. Here's another meme. Religion gave us the dark ages. Science gave us the space age. And so it's this basic narrative that science has been moving us forward, creating all these exciting things, putting people on the moon, right? Um, this afternoon we'll talk about the future of humanity and and the, the awesome potential of science, space colonies, we're when colonize Mars, artificial intelligence. So that'll be this afternoon. But, but this is just looking back. Historically, science, look what it's given us. Whereas religion, it gave us the crusades. It gave us, it held back scientific progress. One of the best examples of this is, is this guy. You know who this is? Galileo. Yeah, this is Galileo. And so the story goes, well, well, look what happened to Galileo, right? He was trying to usher in this, this scientific truth. But religion was holding him back, right? Galileo was was trying to explain the, the universe, but the religious system was holding him holding him back. So it's science against religion. But when you actually look at the life of Galileo, something interesting happens. You begin to recognize that Galileo himself had a high view of scripture. For instance, he wrote, "I think I think in the first place that it's very pious to say and prudent to affirm." The Holy Bible can never speak on truth, whenever its true meaning is understood. And so Galileo didn't sense this tension between what God had revealed in Scripture and his study of the universe that some project onto him. So what's going on? What was the what was the uh, fueling this this conflict with Galileo and the church? Well when you step back and appreciate the worldview that was dominant at the time, a worldview that was inherited from Aristotle. The Aristotelian worldview had been integrated into medieval theology. And it went something like this. You have the earth at the center of the solar system, which was then the entirety of the cosmos. And then you had a number of bodies orbiting the earth, the moon, Mercury, Venus, the sun, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. Incidentally, these bodies are the foundation for the names of of the week, right? The names of the days of the week. So we have like... um, Sunday after the sun, Monday after the moon, and so forth, up to Saturday after Saturn. So the seven days of the week were named after the seven bodies that we could see with the naked eye orbiting the earth. And then there was believed to be some outer spheres where the, the stars were fixed. And then in the outermost sphere, Aristotle had this idea of the prime mover, or the uncaused first cause. And what happened was, when the medieval church read Aristotle someone who was held in very high esteem, they're like, huh, we can integrate this with our religious teachings pretty well. The on cause, first cause is just another name for God. And, and so we could integrate our theology with this philosophy and it gives some kind of prestige, some kind of authority to the church because if you have Aristotle on your team, you know, you're winning, right? So, so they're able to get him on their team. But it came at the cost of not only integrating into the theological system, but also integrating into their their cosmology, their understanding of the world around them. And so what the Reformation then came and did was the Reformation was a pushing back upon Aristotle. By the way, this, this is why there was conflict. When, when Galileo was proposing his model, of, you know, hey, hey, we have this Copernican model, we have the, the sun is at the center, and, and you look up into the heavens, and, and oh, the heavens is not just about things going in perfect circles, right? It's a little more complicated than that. And he's beginning to, to challenge the church because he's challenging Aristotle. And so the cause of the controversy there was because the church had married itself with Aristotle. But what the Reformation did was it pushed back on Aristotelian worldview. For instance, Aristotle had written in his ethics, we become just by doing just acts. So Aristotle has this idea that, you know, what makes you a a flutist? It means, while you're a flutist because you play the flute well. So what makes you just? Well, you're just because you do just things well, right? You, You do just acts. And that would have been integrated into the theological system right? So justice is, is that we become right with God through, through good works. And so you have a pushback in the Reformation where Martin Luther realizes no, the just shall live by faith, right? And so you begin to have a rejection of this marrying of the, the philosophy with the theology. But then that also then paved the way to begin to reject the way in which the astronomy had been married to the church's understanding. So After Martin Luther comes Kepler. Interestingly enough, Kepler calls himself the Luther of astronomy. And what Kepler is doing is he's pushing back on some of these models saying, okay, no, just like how Martin Luther studied the book of Scripture to understand how we become just, now I'm going to study the book of nature and understand how the world really is and come up with models that will challenge those of what the church had uh, previously held be Aristotle. So, central to, to this Reformation was this idea of two books. It's an old idea that, that dates back in Christian history, that there are two books of God's revelation. That God has revealed himself both in the book of Scripture, but also in, in the book of nature. And so, both are telling us something about who God is. And so, when Protestants come, and they begin to read the book of Scripture in a new way, Let's not just listen to the past authorities, let's study the book itself, and then gave permission for individuals to rise up and study the book of nature itself, rather than just listening to what the past authorities had said about nature. Does that, does that make sense? So the Protestant Reformation, rereading the book of scripture, leads the way to the scientific revolution, which is rereading the book of nature. In particular, the Protestants introduced a new hermeneutic that radically changed how they read scripture. Prior to the Reformation, very common were these allegorical readings of scripture. It was considered that there were, there were like four levels of, of reading scripture, where there's like the literal level, that's like the surface, but then if you want to get the true meaning of the text, you need to get to the allegorical reading of scripture. And so, here are some examples of, of how this oracle re- uh, this allegorical reading had been used in Christian history. The church father, Origen, he offered a, a way to make sense of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And, and listen to it. It's quite fantastic. This is his interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan. His allegorical reading of it. He says, the man who was going down is Adam, the, the man who was traveling along the road. Jerusalem is paradise. And Jericho is the world. He's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. The robbers are hostile powers, the ones who come and beat him up. The priest is the law, and Levite is the prophets. The Samaritan is Christ. So the law and the prophets have passed him by, but here comes Christ. His wounds are disobedience. The beast, the, the horse that he put him on, is the Lord's body. The inn that the Samaritan took him to... Which accepts all who wish to enter is the church. The manager of the inn is the head of the church, the bishop, to whom its care has been entrusted. And the fact that the Samaritan promises his return represents the fact that the Savior is coming again, his second coming. And so here he's been able to fit all of redemption history into the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, for the Protestant reformers, when they come to the parable of the Good Samaritan. They go, no, that's not what Jesus was saying, <laughs> right? Like, like, that's good that you've got all the Christian doctrine in there, but this is an allegorical reading that isn't really true to the text itself. This allegorical reading had become rampant. Here are some more examples. When reading the creation account, when you read that on the fourth day there was a greater light and a lesser light, it, it was common to say things like, well, the greater light is, is, is Christ." the lesser light is the church, the stars are the saints. On day one, when God says, let there be light, this is the light of the gospel coming into your life. It's a beautiful story, but is that really what the text was teaching? Or, or, or when Adam was created, the reason he was put to sleep and his side was opened is because he's representing Christ whose side was cut and he slept in the tomb securing for himself a bride. And so it was go through in every passage of Scripture, all of Scripture, it would try to read in this allegorical way. But just as there were two books, not only would they try to read Scripture in this allegorical way, there was a movement to read nature itself in this allegorical way. And so when you'd go out into the world and you'd see birds flying, you would be like, well, that is a symbol or a type of how we can soar above sin in Christ or something like this. Well, right? you can you can imagine that that the all of scripture, the stories of scripture are merely allegories, they're merely allusions to this greater spiritual reality, and all of nature, all of creation is merely some kind of allusion to or a sign to a greater spiritual reality. And so what the Reformers began to do is they began pushing back on this. And they said, no, the text has a literal meaning in itself that isn't just allegorizing, right? That we should understand what the text itself is saying. we will see in a second how this paved the way for modern science. But I want to point out that there's a danger in modern Adventism that sometimes we can fall into the same allegorizing of the text. And so here are some, some versions I've heard. The parable of the lost coin there are ten coins and one's missing. Oh, there are ten commandments. One has been forgotten. I, I don't know if you've ever heard this. Well, well, it's true that we have largely forgotten the Sabbath commandment in Christianity. But I'm not sure if that's what the parable of the lost coin is actually about. Or, or when you read a story about a woman like Ruth or about some ship, Paul traveled in some ship. It's actually an allegory for what's going to happen to the church. And if you go down, you break it down in great detail, you can see how it's it's telling you the history of Adventism or something like this. Or the Song of Songs is, is actually about the great disappointment. Well, it's true that Scripture does teach about the investigative judgment and those important biblical doctrines, but I'm not sure if you're going to find that in the Song of Songs. Or everything in the sanctuary corresponds to what your body is a living sanctuary and therefore... Everything in the sanctuary corresponds to your body in some way, and the church is is, is the temple of God, so every, every nook and cranny in the sanctuary tells you something about the church, and Christ is in heaven, so every little nook and cranny tells you some detail about his heavenly ministry, and sometimes people come up with fantastic claims by allegorizing the text in this way. And I want to suggest that, that we need to be careful in doing this, that some of these come to the right doctrinal conclusions, but they model an irresponsible way of reading the text, they're reading more into the text than is actually there. Yes, the, certainly Scripture teaches about the Sabbath and teaches about the history of the church and teaches about the fantastic teachings of the sanctuary, but we need to make sure that we don't read that into stories where it wasn't intended. Is that clear? Okay, fantastic. So here's the implication of the Reformers. When the Reformers came back and they said, let's step back, let's abandon and let's just try and study the text itself and see its primary meaning, its literal meaning. Peter Harrison, a historian of science, notes its influence. He says, had it not been for the rise of the literal interpretation of the Bible, this Protestant hermeneutic, and the subsequent appropriation of biblical narratives by early modern scientists, modern science may not have arisen at all. In sum, the Bible in its literal interpretation have played a vital role in the development of Western science. This is his book, The Bible, Protestantism, and the Rise of Natural Science. I encourage you to read it. It's a little bit dense, but it's a fantastic summary because it shows how when Protestants said, let's start taking the text of Scripture seriously, it led to people saying, let's start taking the book of nature seriously. It's not just a sign or illusion of a greater spirituality. Creation itself has value. God created this world and we can go out and we can study it and we can understand it. And so rather than people, sometimes you, you hear like, if you take Genesis seriously, it's opposed to science. But historically, it was people taking Genesis seriously that let them to conclude it's not just about spiritual realities, that God actually values our physical world. He created a physical creation that we're part of that led people to begin to take nature itself seriously and invest in the study of nature. Isn't that cool? So taking, taking Scripture seriously, even a literal reading of Scripture, is what led to the rise of modern science. We can see a number of the Reformers even anticipating this during the Reformation. Martin Luther, in one of his table talks, is recorded as saying that we are at the dawn of a new era. For we are beginning to recover the knowledge of the eternal world that was lost through the fall of Adam. So he so anticipated, He says, "We're going to usher in all this new knowledge of the world around us." Right? What was really fantastic about Luther and the reformers is they recognized the priesthood of all believers. And what the priesthood of all believers says is, it's whatever your job, whatever your occupation. If you are participating in God's good creation, may, maybe you're building something, maybe you're doing some creative task, maybe you're caring for people. Then, then your work is sacred. It's not only the work of the priest that is sacred. Everyone belongs to this priesthood. So whatever you do is sacred. And then this leads to the possibility of, of scientific exploration itself being a vocation, of being a calling, of, of studying the world around you and understanding it, is itself a sacred work. It's not just the priest who does something special and everyone else is, is stuck doing some lowly lot. But each one of us, by living in and existing in and extending God's good creation, Maybe it be for serving people or taking care of the planet, or doing creative works ourselves, we're participating in this creation, and that has incredible value. We're acting as a priest in that capacity, as a priest of all believers. And so you can start to see how after Luther and this revolution, this, this Reformation, a number of these scientists come forward and they understand their science to be an extension of their faith, people like Kepler who said, I had the intention of becoming a theologian. And maybe he would have been a good one. But notice what he says. But now I see how God is, by my endeavors, by his science, also glorified in astronomy, for the heavens declare the glory of God. And so these pioneers of modern science understood that what they were doing to understand the universe was glorifying God. That Their science is not in tension with their faith. Rather, it's coming out of their faith. Isaac Newton put it this way. He wrote the, the Principia Mathematica, perhaps the most scientific, the most important scientific document in all of history. It's, it's fantastic. He, he develops the laws of motion. He gives a mathematical derivation for, for Kepler's laws, explaining why planets move in elliptical paths. It's a fantastic document. But notice what he says about it. He says, When I wrote my treatise about our system, about the solar system, I had an eye upon such principles as might work with considering men For belief in a deity, and nothing can rejoice me more than to find it useful for that purpose. So Newton's saying, my greatest joy is that when people read and understand my work on the mathematical structure of the solar system, they come to believe in, or at least consider belief in God. It kind of sounds like John at the end of his gospel. He says, I wrote these things so that you may believe. But for Newton, he wasn't just writing gospel, he was writing science, but he understood that, that his science was revealing who God is. What I want us to do now, seeing that, that a study of Scripture has not been opposed to science but has fueled it, I want us to take today's seminar to dig into Revelation chapters. Uh, I'm sorry, Genesis chapters one through three, a little bit deeper. And see, what is Genesis chapter 1 through 3 really saying? Now, there's so much there. We could spend all six seminars just going through those first three chapters. It's packed. But I'm just going to try and hit some key points to try and really understand what's going on in Genesis. respond to some criticisms and try and understand the significance of Genesis for our lives today. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to pull it out. Or if you have a phone, you can pull it out. And we're going to be digging into the first three chapters of Genesis trying to see what's going on there, and why is it still so significant for us today. As you turn to Genesis, you'll catch the opening line. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's going on here? What's the significance of the statement? The first observation is when the text says heaven and earth, when it puts together these two opposites, what it's saying is it's saying everything, the universe, the cosmos. The Hebrews don't have a word for the universe as a whole, so it employs a device called a mirrorism. What a mirrorism does is it brings together two opposites to represent the whole. For instance, the book of Joshua, chapter 1, verse 8. The command is given to keep the book of the law always on your lips meditate on it day and night what is it meant by meditate on it day and night meditate on it all the time it brings together two opposites day and night not to say oh don't worry about it in the afternoon right no what it's trying to say is is here are the two opposites here are the two extremes the day and the night and together when i bring them together represents the whole so meditate on it continuously Similarly, you see another example in 2 Chronicles, chapter 34, verse 30. It refers to all the people great and small. Well, how about the medium-sized people? Right? No, no, what it's doing is it's bringing together the two opposites, great and small, to represent the entirety. Is that clear? When you make your wedding vows, you say things like, For better or worse, rich or poor, sick how's it go sickness and health it's bringing together opposites to make the point of all the time right this commitment is forever and so the same things functioning here in this first verse in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth that is in the beginning god created the totality of everything and we see this very clearly in the new testament like for instance john chapter 1 it says that Christ, all things are created by Christ, uh, through him, all things were made that were made. We can look at the grammatical structure of in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and we can see that it's serving as an introduction. Notice it begins with a temporal marker in the beginning, next in the Hebrew is the verb, but in our translation comes, comes the, the object, the subject God, and then a verb created, and then the object of his creation, the heavens and the earth. This is a common device used in books to, to introduce, to give some background information that introduces the, the, us to the, to the setting. For like instance, in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, you're given some temporal marker. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Then you give in the subject, Nebuchadnezzar. And then you give in the verb, he came. Where did he come to? Jerusalem, he besieged it. Similarly in Ezra. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, you're given some temporal marker. Who? The Lord. What did he do? He stir up. Each of these cases, it's giving you an introduction, and the introduction is providing some background information. Uh, Do do books outside the Bible do this? Well, sure. I mean, it's just a grammatical construction you can probably find all over the place if you were to uh, look at other books. So, I... I, I can't think of an introduction in a particular book right now that does it. Oh, you should look at the first sentence of Steps to Christ and see if it does it. But, but I'm interested in this right here because it's showing us the way to understand this statement in the Hebrew is it's giving us some kind of background to introduce what's happening in the text. See, some think that when you read Genesis 1-1 and it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that's simply operating as a summary of what's to follow. But I believe what's actually going on there is it's not a summary of the chapter, it's an introduction to the chapter that's giving you background. I need you to know, the author is saying, that God has created everything, that's the background. And then from that background, it moves on and it focuses attention specifically on the earth. Not only is it claiming that God created everything, but the incredible claim of scripture is God created everything from nothing, ex nihilo. We see this explicit in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. By faith we understand that the worlds were formed by the word of God, so the things which are seen were not made by things which are visible, that that they're not made by pre-existing matter, that God brought them about by the power of his word. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. That there's nothing that exists independent of God. God brought everything into existence. Now now maybe that doesn't seem so radical, but if you compare this account with other creation accounts, those of the Babylonians or elsewhere, you see that this is altogether singular, it's altogether unique. Because in other religious creation accounts, it typically begins with there exists some primordial material, some chaotic system, some some waters or some earth or some original material. And from this material, the gods emerge, the gods are born, the gods have a beginning. It's a theogony. And then once the gods come into existence, then they begin to shape that material and form the universe around it. Genesis is quite different because it begins by emphasizing, no, God himself created everything. The heavens and the earth has a beginning. God does not, in contrast to these other accounts where there's some original material that has no beginning from which the gods emerge. And so the God of Scripture is quite unique from these other gods. Genesis 1-2 moves on to focus on the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. But Genesis doesn't begin with 1 verse 2. Because if it did, then you might be tempted to think, well, the waters were always there, the earth was always there, God just came along and shaped it. That's why it begins by emphasizing in Genesis 1 verse 1, God created everything, God created the universe, and then it moves and says, now let's focus on what he did to the earth, how he prepared the earth, how he made it inhabitable for us. Is that clear? Okay, Great. Let me pause and see if there are any questions at this point. Yeah, right here. <coughs> if uh, the so, if the uh... if the. Uh... If God had not built mm-hmm. the earth, mm-hmm. it would have been the other way around? Uh, so if God had not created the earth, then I guess it would have had to exist forever. But that's why Genesis is going out of its way to emphasize, in the beginning, God created everything. So everything traces back to God. It's not that some things existed before God, right? So Genesis is trying to emphasize that God is created of everything. And then the New Testament goes above and beyond, emphasizes this point even more so. Weren't the angels created before that? That's right. So Genesis 1 does not engage with the creation of the angels. Elsewhere, Scripture would talk about the angels. That's not in the purview of Genesis chapter 1. Very good. Okay. Let's keep moving. So after Genesis 1 verse 1, we see in Genesis 1 verse 2, attention is moving to the earth. And then what God does is He goes through a series of steps to prepare the earth. There's a structure to the series. God's not acting arbitrarily. He's not just doing random activities. On the first three days, He's forming the spaces of the earth. So on the first day, He separates light from darkness. And he calls the light day, and He calls the darkness night. On the second day, separating the waters, the waters above from the waters below. On the third day, he separates the land from the sea. And then what he does on the next three days is he fills up those spaces. On the first day, he had separated light from darkness. On the fourth day, we see that he gives the greater light and the lesser light the task of governing the seasons. They're filling up the light and the darkness. We see that? Now, it's significant that Genesis doesn't call them the sun and the moon. It doesn't give them any names at all. It simply says the greater light and the lesser light. Why is Genesis doing this? Because Genesis wants us to be reminded that their job is simply to function, to govern the seasons. They're not some kind of gods in themselves. The temptation would be to worship the sun as a god. And so they're not even going to name the sun and the moon. It simply says, no, no, they're simply a greater light and a lesser light. They're not actually deities. It's trying to demystify de- 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 the, the cosmos. They're they're, they're functional. They're not deities. Day five, well, on day two, he had separated the waters above from the waters below. So on day five, he fills that up. He fills above with the flying creatures and below with the sea creatures. And day six, on day three, God had separated the land from the sea. On day six, God fills up the land with various land creatures and ultimately with humanity. So God is forming spaces And then he's filling those spaces. Notice what happens at day 7. What is God forming? He's forming a space in time. And what's he filling it with? With his presence. He's blessing. He sanctifies it. He fills it with his presence. Isn't that beautiful? So Sabbath is, is God has carved out this space in time. That he's filled with himself in desire to be with humanity. So that's the, the creation account going through these days. One highlight of the creation account is on the sixth day, the image of God. Now what does it mean when the scripture talks about God made us in his image? We can go through. We can see that the first aspect is that in some way we resemble God. Genesis one verse twenty six says, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So and somehow we resemble God. That's not to say we are God. No, no, no. God is creator, we are created. But somehow we have a, a moral, a spiritual nature. We we have the ability to reason. We have the ability to engage in complex language, be it language like mathematics or or language like English or one of the other many languages, right? We can engage in language. We can do these things that set us apart from the other animals. So God has made us in His image to give us the capacity to reason, to to think, but also to enter into relationship with him, to have a moral aspect to our nature. We have a free will, right? We can exercise our will. So in some sense, God has endowed us with unique capacities. Not only do we resemble God, but there's a relational aspect to the image of God. God created man in his image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Somehow, us reflecting the image of God comes down to the fact that we're made both male and female. Somehow, human relationships are reflecting the relationship that exists in the Godhead. God says, let us, make God in, uh, let us make man in our image. God exists in plurality. God exists in a community of love. And he's created humanity to reflect that. And part of being made in the image of God is we're both male and female. And we're able to reflect the love that exists in the Godhead. And one last aspect I want to suggest that what it means to be made in the image of God is that we are representatives of God. When God gives these commands, be fruitful and multiply, Fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the earth. God has invited us to do the kinds of things that He has just been doing in creation. God had been creating, God had been exercising governance over the world, and now he says, I want you to step into some capacity where you, well, you don't create from nothing, but you procreate, you 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 spread life, you exercise governance over the animals. I want to invite you into sharing this. Roll with me. I want you to participate in creation with me. And so we share in God's rule of and care for creation. We extend creation. And so this is what I was saying that the, the Protestant reformers, when they came to the priest of all believers, they said, whatever your job is, whatever you're doing, whatever you do throughout the week, it's a sacred priestly thing because you're, you're participating in the creation order. That that when you create, when you do creative acts, right, make a YouTube video or paint a painting, it's, it's, you're acting out in this creative capacity, reflecting the image of God, extending his good creation. This is also science itself. Us understanding the world and then us extending creation, innovating, creating technologies is us reflecting the image of God, right? So this is what it means to be made in the image of God, Now, some have debated, well, well, which one is it? Is it that we resemble God, that somehow relationships reflect God, or that we're His representatives? The answer is it's all three. In order for us to be His representatives, we need to resemble Him. We need to have these unique aspects of our nature. You know, the three are tied together. And so it's a holistic view to, to be reflecting the image of God. means we're made in His likeness, but we're also entrusted with responsibilities. And in our relationships, we reflect the love that exists within the Trinity. Okay, quick question. I'm get the mic right here. <coughs> Doesn't that also mean that we look like God as well? Oh, so you're asking, do we look like God in some physical way? So I yeah. would suggest that for when we resemble God, i merely point to a moral or spiritual nature, the fact that we can reason and use language. But you might know, want to know, does God have like a physical nose, right? And does God have like two ears, Right. Well, I don't know if scripture um, would give us any reason to suggest that, and I, I would be careful to go too far down that line of thought. But we can say this, in the incarnation, God has taken upon himself humanity, and so now there is in heaven one who looks like us, one who is even a son of man. And that's an incredible fact that, that independent of how God looked before, He has taken upon Himself humanity in the Incarnation. And so the Incarnation just further gives value to humanity. Being made in the image of God, that's profound enough already. But the fact that God takes upon Himself humanity in the Incarnation, wow, that's God valuing humanity in a really significant way. I want us to contrast this depiction of the image of God, I will come to question in a second, with some other creation accounts. So we just saw the the high view of what humanity is to be in the Genesis account, but how did some other worldviews? How did they understand it? Here's the Babylonian creation account, Enuma Elish. It puts it this way: A savage man shall be his name. Verily, savage man I will create. He should be charged with the service of the gods that they might be at ease. What a contrast! The Babylonian depiction of what it means to be human is to be human is to be a savage. To be human is to serve the God so that they may be at ease. The the, the biblical creation count is God makes us in his image so that we can join with him in extending and appreciating creation. Genesis even mentions, it says, when he talks about God creating the trees, it says he created beautiful trees. It throws in the word beautiful. It's like like God just wants us to enjoy the beauty of creation. It's like God values humanity so much. It's I'm going to create beauty and give them the capacity to enjoy incredible sunsets and beautiful trees. Versus these other accounts view humanity as, as some kind of animal whose only purpose is to serve the gods at their pleasure. What a contrast. Do we have a question? Let's um, get a question right here. And then I want to think about what are some of those implications for today? Yeah. All right. Actually, my question goes back to uh, Genesis one one and one two. Yep. When you were saying that God created the universe. Yep. And then it focuses on the creation of the earth. Yep. Does that mean that Earth, the, the matter and the uh, materials that God used to create Earth, were floating in space for an un? Hmm. You know, I'm not sure if the text specifies that. But, um, so some some would say that Genesis 1 verse 1 happens at the very beginning of the first day of creation, God creates everything. But I don't think it's necessary to read the text that way. I think it's fine to read the text as at some point in the past, God created everything. I don't know how long passed, some amount of time passed. I have no idea if it was the same day or if it was much, much, much later that God comes and he focuses his activity on preparing the earth. So the days of creation are specifically focused on God preparing the earth and so it's some people do read many do read that at some point in the distant past billions of years ago who knows God created the universe as a whole but then much more recently he focused his divine activity on the earth to prepare it oh the mic is dead so I'm going to let you speak into my mic so my question was specifically focused on the fact that uh, the universe could be billions of or trillions of years old, but the lifespan of the earth could be much shorter. Mm-hmm. And that, that's biblical? Uh, I see no tension between that and scripture. So I think it, um, if you read Genesis 1, it's fine to read Genesis 1. I don't think it says that God created the, the heavens and the earth 14 billion years ago. But it, it doesn't exclude the possibility It just simply lets us know that God created the heavens and the earth, right? And so there's no tension there. But it does then focus on, at some point more recently, well, it seems like the earth was already there in some capacity, but God was preparing the earth to make it ready for life. And that happened much more recent in the the biblical view. So I hope that answers your question. It's not that it insists upon that, but that's a possible way of reading the text. And, And maybe some of us would disagree on that. Maybe some of us would insist the whole universe was created instantly at the beginning of creation week, and maybe some of us are more comfortable with there being a gap. And I think there's room for that disagreement to take place. Okay, let's get one more comment on. I think this is probably an important discussion, and then I want to move on back to reflecting on the image of God and its significance. I just wanted to make a comment on what you were just saying that you can either see the whole universe being created in the beginning of creation week or long before. But if you do it at the beginning of creation week, there's no room for like the fall of Lucifer and Mm. the creation of everything else. So there would have to have some sort of span of time, I would think. Yeah, that's a great point. So Adventists have um, often been very comfortable with a very old universe because we understand there's this whole prehistory to the creation week of all the angelic hosts and the narrative of Lucifer. Now... That, that takes place in heaven. It's not clear, is, is heaven part of our physical universe or not? Right? And so, you know, you can ask those kinds of questions. I, I don't think the biblical data is definitive on that. And so I, I'm, I'm happy to let people speculate on that and leave room for, for some different views on that. Okay, let's keep moving. we will come back to more Q&A. But I want to think about what are the implications of the image of God? And in particular, I want us to reflect upon the West and, and in Western civilization... This idea of human rights. So sometimes we we think this idea of human rights is, is universal and natural. But it's important when you look back at history, you see that prior civilizations have very different ideas about what kind of rights people have. For instance, Aristotle in his politics argued that there should be a law that no deformed child should live. Now, now, to modern sensibilities, we just think, that's incredible, how could you think that? It's, it's a human being, right? It's a human being that's instilled with dignity. But, but where does that modern sense of human dignity come from? And I want to suggest that it comes from this idea of the image of God. It passes through the Enlightenment, it takes a secular flavor to it, so we don't have to use religious language, but ultimately it traces back to the conviction that all humans are infinitely valuable, that have incredible dignity, independent of their ability to work or to perform, independent of if they have deformities or not, because they're made still in the image of God. Notice the Declaration of Independence, how it echoes this language. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed with their, by the Creator with certain unalienable rights. And so it views human rights as being God-endowed, as coming from the fact that we're made in the image of God. Now, you read this and maybe you recognize quickly that, well, when these words were written, not all people were treated with full dignity, right? That wasn't extended to all people. But that idea of human rights coming from people being made in the image of God was so powerful that it allowed us to appeal to it for progress. For instance, Martin Luther King, when he's making his case for racial equality, notice the language he used. Man is more than a tiny vagary of whirling electrons or a wisp of smoke from a limitless smoldering. Man is a child of God, made in his image, and therefore must be respected as such. And so throughout history, it's this powerful idea of the image of God that people were appealed to, to allow us to recognize, hey, you know, maybe we haven't always lived up to this, but this extends to all people, right? This has implications for how we live. Viktor Frankl points out some of the moral implications. Viktor Frankl, survivor of the Holocaust, puts it this way. He says, if we present a man with a conception of man, which is not true, like that Babylonian conception, man is a savage, we may well corrupt him. When we present man as an, autom- as an automation of reflexes, as a mind machine, as a bundle of instincts, as a pawn of drives and reactions, as a mere product of instinct, heredity, and environment, we feed the nihilism to which modern man is in any case prone. He says, I became acquainted with this last stage of that corruption in my second concentration camp, Auschwitz. The gas chambers of Auschwitz were the ultimate consequence of the theory that man is nothing but the product of heredity and environment, or as the Nazi like to say, of blood and soil. So he's pointing out that if we abandon this depiction of man as being made in the image of God, if we compromise for something less, that, that was simply the product of environment, was simply the result of some naturalistic accounts then this seems to corrupt individuals. It seems to lead them into a nihilism, a, a place of meaninglessness where we fail to respect each other with dignity. So that's the ultimate end. To be clear, he's not saying that that an individual who may at the time be an atheist can't respect people. Absolutely. There, there are all kinds of atheists who, who have very high views of humans and, and very high views of people. But what well, the question is, is what's the basis for that view? And I want to suggest that even if someone's professing atheism, the high view of people, the dignity of saying to people reveals the fact that they're actually relying upon this doctrine of the image of God, even if they don't explicitly affirm it. It's still informing their ethical framework. It's still the foundation of their ethics. And that's one way we can appeal to people. We can say, hey, you have a high view of people and a high view of dignity. And so where does that come from? And and what worldview will allow you to affirm these things that you care about so much? I want to briefly mention a connection with the Sabbath. Genesis 2 talks about the Sabbath, but it's made more explicit in in Exodus 20. And I just want to emphasize the way that Sabbath is an affirmation of human dignity. Notice the Sabbath commandment. It begins, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. So what is it saying? It's saying you're to do this thing, work six days and rest. Why? Because God did this thing. So what's the logic there? Oh, well, it's because you're in the image of God. And since you're in the image of God, you have to reflect the kind of divine activity that God himself participated in. And so Sabbath is actually a reminder that you're made in the image of God. But notice the commandment goes on, because Genesis teaches that all humanity shares in the image of God. So so notice how the commandment goes on. You should not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. It's this idea that that human dignity, it extends to all these classes of individuals. And even the animals have some level of dignity as well. Right, That independent of your race or your social standing, independent of of how much money you have, independent of your gender, you share the image of God and therefore you deserve the dignity of rest. I think about our current political and social situation and how we divided we are. And I wonder if we took Sabbath seriously... And we saw Sabbath as a time as us coming together and affirming that all people have dignity. Independent of race, independent of gender, independent of social status, all people, independent of nationality, all people have dignity. Wow, wouldn't that be a powerful statement at a time when we were so divided, at a time when we were so nasty to each other, that we can, in our Sabbath-keeping, be affirming the dignity of all people? It goes on to say, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And this is reminding us that, that since God is the one who makes Sabbath holy, God is also the one, the only one who can make us holy. So while the work we do is valuable, it's us participating in creation, that's not the ultimate foundation of our holiness. The foundation of our holiness is God's work. So that's the message of the Sabbath and the relevance of it today. Well, one more question comes up in Genesis that I want to spend a few minutes on. And that's why there are two creation accounts. We had Genesis 1. It seemed to already tell the story. And interestingly enough, it doesn't finish until Genesis 2, the creation account finishes. You have Genesis 1, 1 begins, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then it finishes in Genesis 2, verse 4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth. We're done. That that was the history of it. But then it begins what seems to be a second account in Genesis chapter 2. In the day that the Lord, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, In the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and then starts going through a second account. The account focusing on Adam and Eve. And so what's going on there? Why are there two creation accounts? And some have used this as a critique of Scripture. And they said things like, oh, well, that must mean that, you know, there were two competing accounts and someone just stuck them together and, and they posited that there were different authors of the two accounts. But I want to suggest there's actually a very deep harmony between the two accounts. The first one, Genesis chapter 1, It's giving the cosmic creation account. It is focusing on here's the creation of the world as a whole, how the world came into being. In Genesis 1, verse 1, how the whole universe came into existence. But then Genesis 2 focuses specifically on humanity. But not in a competing way. Rather, what Genesis 2 is doing is it's unpacking the sixth day of Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, on the sixth day, you're told that God creates male and female, very briefly. But then in detail in Genesis chapter 2, it goes through and it tells the account of how that happened. How God created Adam and he caused the sleep to befall him. And, and it goes through that whole narrative. In Genesis chapter 1, you're given the, they were given the command to be fruitful and multiply. And then in Genesis chapter 2, you have a, a further expounding upon the family and what it means for them to become one flesh. In Genesis chapter 1, they're given the command to do work, to, to fill the earth and subdue it, to have dominion, to, to exercise this kind of governance. And in Genesis chapter 2, you're given the account of how Adam is placed in the garden to work it, to keep it, to tend it, to protect it, how he has the job of naming animals. And so it's just unpacking the command that's given in Genesis 1. is being unpacked in Genesis 2 in detail. In Genesis 1, you're given a command about diet, about the trees they may eat from. and Genesis 2, that becomes unpacked further. And so all Genesis 2 is doing is it's unpacking the sixth day, and it's focusing in on humanity and emphasizing further the relationship between God and humanity. Some may object, though, but wait a second. If you look at the beginning of Genesis 2, it seems to contradict the creation account. For instance, it says, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, and when there was no man to till the ground... And didn't God have already just created the plants and created humanity? So why is it saying here that it's not yet created? And so some say that the two accounts are contradicting each other. But when you dig into it, notice what it's actually doing is it's simply previewing the fall before any plant of the field was, was in the earth well, was the means of the diet in Genesis chapter 2? They wouldn't eat plants of the field. Rather, they would eat from the trees. And it's not until the curse of Genesis 3 that they are commanded to eat from the plants of the field and by your sweat you would eat bread, right? They're given that hard task of doing agriculture. And it says there's no man to steal the ground. It's not saying humanity hadn't been created yet. Rather, it's focusing on the fact that the humanity's not yet tilling the ground. They're not yet doing that hard labor. And so what Genesis 2 is doing is Genesis 2 is zooming into the sixth day of creation and unpacking it. But it's also previewing the fall. It's letting us know that this was a time before all of these things took place. It's setting us up for it's anticipating the fall. So it's not a contradiction. It's just anticipation of what's to come. And then, of course, we have the story of the fall. What I want to do now is I want to talk about the significance of the fall for people today. Because sometimes people hear the story of the fall and they're like, that's kind of a weird story. What's going on? Or or, or why should I care about it? That just sounds like some myth. But I want to suggest that the doctrine of the fall has a profound significance for us to make sense of our lives today. G.K. Chesterton unpacked this. He was a, a British author. He put it this way. He said, the fall is a view of life. It's not only enlightening, but it's an encouraging view of life. A man who holds to this view of life, the view of the fall, will find it giving light on a thousand things on which evolutionary ethics has not a word to say. He says, it has more explanatory power. In the last presentation, we saw how Christianity was able to make sense of the universe as a whole. I want to suggest here, the doctrine of the fall is able to make sense of our personal experience. And this is a powerful way for us to combat apathyism. Because everyone has some experience of existential angst, of of being at war within themselves. And the fall helps us to make sense of this. G.K. Tristan puts it this way that happiness is not only a hope, but also in some strange manner a memory, and that we are kings in exile. And he points out that if you look at all the great poetry, Of all the different people from different worldviews, backgrounds, religious perspectives, there's some longing for something that seems to have been lost. And the fog gives words to that longing. It helps us to understand why do we have this universal longing for some kind of lost happiness. Pascal, he puts it this way. He says, Man is but a reed, the most feeble thing in nature, but he is a thinking reed. The entire universe need not arm itself to crush him. A vapor, a drop of water would suffice to kill him. But if the universe were to crush him, man would still be more noble than that which killed him because he knows that he dies and the advantage which the universe has over him and the universe knows none of us. And so, so what Pascal is saying is there's some contradiction in what it means to be human. There's a greatness in that we can think and we can understand and make sense of the world. But there's also a nothingness in that we realize that we are but dust. And what gives an account, how are we to make sense of what it means to be human, both this greatness and this nothingness? He he unpacks this idea further. He says that, that man's greatness and wretchedness, these two extremes, are so evident. Everyone experiences this. Everyone experiences this angst of both being an incredible thinking creature, but also a sense of you're nothing in comparison to the universe as a whole. He says, man's greatness and wretchedness is so evident that true religion must necessarily teach us that there is in man both some principle of greatness and some principle of wretchedness. And I want to suggest that the doctrine of the fall is able to connect in this really vivid way with people's lived experiences. That we are but dust, and you can identify with that in such a true way. I am but dust in comparison to the world. You think about your mortality, you think about the vastness of the world, and yet, I am made in the image of God. I can think and I can reason. And that paradox of being human, that the fall connects with and explains that, and that people are longing for that kind of explanation. It's important because once you recognize that the fall diagnoses our human condition, then you can begin to find that Scripture also presents a solution to the human problem. For instance, we face the problem of racism. But notice how the teaching of Genesis which Paul echoes in Acts seventeen that from one man God made all the nations that nation they should inhabit the whole earth. Combats that by emphasizing we're all part of one human family, right? The fall is speaking directly to these contemporary issues that we face. The, the deduction of creation is saying, "Hey, this has relevance for how we think about humanity today," but it also has relevance for our existential problem. This angst we feel that we are both great and we are nothing, because if. Adam can diagnose, if the fall of Adam can diagnose a problem, then Romans chapter 5 points out that the victory of Christ can give us a solution. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more are God's grace and the gift of that man come by Jesus Christ and overflow to many? And so for us Christians, we must hold on to the reality of historical Adam and recognize that that diagnoses our problem, our human condition, because it paves the way for historical Jesus that solved that problem. Does that make sense? That the fall both diagnoses the problem of what it means to be human, but then it points us to the solution in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. I want to end by making a few comments about, but how about modern science? Is it compatible with these views of Adam and Eve? Well, I was saying before that, that science relies upon models. Models. And so all these models are going to be based upon assumptions, and so it's really difficult. If you go back into the past and try and project into the past, our models will be inherently limited. But there are some recent discoveries that seem to speak in, in some kind of agreement with at least the overall texture of Genesis. One is, is the discovery of a Y-chromosomal atom. So men have an X and Y chromosome, and women have two Xs, right? Which means... Each man receives his Y chromosome from his father. And so this Y chromosome carries a, a, a patronial lineage you can trace back. And, and each man receives it from his father, receives it from his father, from his father. And we've discovered that, that there's a common patronal ancestor. There's a common father that all living males share. We've done genetic analysis that show that all living males have a common male ancestor that you can trace back by, uh, on the DNA of the Y chromosome. It's called He's called Y-chromosomal atom. Similarly, you have this mitochondrial DNA that's passed on to you from your mother. And as we trace it back, we see there's a common living, there's a common matrial lineage. So you can go all the way back and you see there's a common ancestor, a woman, that all living individuals have as their ancestor. And she's called mitochondrial Eve. Now, the model's... Don't necessarily put them as being contemporaries. Some put the Eve as living before the Adam. Some put the Adam as living before the Eve. They don't necessarily suggest that they're the only living people at a time. Uh, As I said, these models are held and limited. Uh, You know, they they were based on assumptions about how quickly genetic material is mutating. But the overall tenure of the models are pointing to the fact that indeed we all came from one man, as Acts says, right? So I just wanted to end with a brief reflection on the relationship between faith and science. And I think Ellen White nails it in the book Education. On page 128, she says, Since the book of nature and the book of Revelation, that's those two books we were talking about, bear the impress of the same mastermind, they cannot but speak in harmony. By different methods and in different languages, they witness to the same great truths. Science is ever discovering new wonders, but she brings from her research nothing that rightly understood conflicts with divine revelation. The book of nature and the written word shed light upon each other. They make us acquainted with God by teaching us something of the laws through which he works. And so I think the model goes something like this. God is the author of both scripture and nature. And therefore those two things must speak in harmony. Rightly understood. But theology, which is our interpretation of scripture, and science which is our interpretation of... I'm sorry, theology is interpretation of Scripture, and science, our interpretation of nature, can sometimes be in conflict. This shouldn't surprise us. Uh, science is tentative. We're constantly coming up with new models. Even within science, there are conflicts. We have general relativity to describe the very large. We have... Quantum mechanics describe the very small, but these two things come into tension when we study things that are both very massive and very small, like black holes. So even within science, we have conflicts that we're trying to resolve. We don't give up on science. We continue to investigate it. We continue to grow in our understanding. In the same way, some of our scientific models may be in tension sometimes with theology, but we expect that as we continue to study and continue to grow in our understanding, that as we better understand scripture and nature, these two things will speak in harmony. Because there's the same mastermind behind it. Well, I'm gonna end there. Let me say a word of prayer and then I'll open it up to any questions you may have. Father God, we just want to praise you for revealing yourself to us, both in in a general way through nature, so that we can go outside, we can watch sunsets and just stand in awe of an incredible universe that you've created. But also that you've revealed yourself in a specific way in Scripture that you revealed a plan of salvation to address our human condition. Father, we praise you for that. Father, we pray that we might grow to a greater depth of appreciation of your love as we study your created works, as we dig into your word, and that you might better equip us to, to share that hope with others, that we might show them how your word really does address the, the angst that we all feel, this, this, ish, this being torn between wretchedness and greatness. But it also gives a resolution, a solution, a solution, In the second Adam, the final Adam, Jesus Christ, and what he accomplished on the cross. In him is our hope. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay. Um, We're out of time, so if you want to slip out, that's fine. But I'm happy to take some questions. And I'll open it up so that, you know, everyone can hear them. So, questions. Yeah. Let's um, get a few of these. Yeah. In the previous presentation, you said there were some constant in nature that were finely tuned uh, about the the isotopes decay and how we date geology, for example, and some other material in nature, what would you say about the constant use there or the equation used there? Yeah, yeah that's a good question. So um, we tend to assume this uniformity as we go back that um, various decay rates have been constant and that's going to influence our models. Um, I, I don't have anything particularly provocative to say this is not my field of expertise so you know I, I can't suggest this is a particular way that the models are deficient or this is a way to understand them. We have good people working on this at the um, Geoscience Research Institute. We have a number of people thinking about this problem and working through it. Um, but I, I would just come back to this basic model that even if at times we may find points of tension, uh, we have the conviction that ultimately nature and scripture speak in harmony. And I think we saw that in the last talk. The big idea of what is science and, and what we know about the universe on a grand scale, there's incredible agreement Even if at some of these final points, we may feel some tension. Yeah. I just had a quick question um, about... I've been in arguments with people that have said that mathematics don't actually exist in nature. That it's just a tool that we use as human beings to understand physics and the world around us. Um, As a mathematician, what do you have to say about uh, mathematics existing in nature? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so, like, does the number seven exist somewhere? You know, like, is it, like, floating out there somewhere? Um, there's the Platonic view, which Plato had, like, there's some Platonic realm where they exist. Um, some Christians are, uh, say that they exist in the mind of God. Um, I'm fine with saying that mathematics is just a human invention, right? But, but the fact that we can invent mathematics, now that's telling us something, that's telling us something about what it means to be human, right? Because, like, you know, as we were saying, animals, monkeys, dogs could not come up with the mathematics. But we can come up with things like e to the i pi plus 1 equals 0. And so I'm less concerned about if e is floating out there in space somewhere, right? And I'm more concerned about what does that tell me about what it means to be human? And what is it saying about our human minds? And, and when you look at, then at the applicability of mathematics, then not only can we develop consistent mathematics, but then it goes on to explain the universe, that seems to be saying that that there's some deep sense in which our minds are wired to both seek truth and beauty. Mathematicians often describe mathematics as beautiful. But then that truth and beauty corresponds in a profound way with the very fabric of the universe, right? And so I think that's that's a profound testimony to the fact that we're made in the image of God, and therefore we can think and we can reason, and that corresponds with God's creative activity. Now, if you want to posit that E is floating somewhere, you, can, you don't have to. My concern is just what does it tell us about being human that we can think of and understand these things? Uh, So my question relates to your previous session about the big chill. So as entropy increases and we inevitably approach absolute zero and like the end of the universe, uh, how do you reconcile that with God's original plan of eternity for for man like on earth? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe your objection is something along the lines. um, If God created man to be eternal then why would the universe be set up in such a way to run down or these kinds of things? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I mentioned, you know, the big chill is just one of a couple of models of, you know, there's there's various um, cosmological eschatologies of how the universe will end. Um, One might wonder, you know, what's the ultimate consequence of sin on the universe, right? Uh, And what's meant by God creating a new heavens and new earth? What kind of ways is God sustaining the world in that capacity? I can only speculate here. And so I don't have a definitive answer for any of this. But those are the line of thought you may go down. Uh, Romans 8, after all, indicates that creation is groaning. And so there's some way in which the fall of humanity impacted the creation order. That creation is like longing out to be restored. And, and I don't know, like, you know, does that have like some implications for the physics I'm going to be very cautious to make that claim. But that may be a line of thought you want to pursue. Um, but I don't know if we can do much more than speculate on that question. But but certainly, Scripture does show God established a new heavens and new earth that does dwell forever. And so we do see that, that coming about. Yeah. So the question about mathematics and such, we see that there are definite mathematical patterns on plants and, and you know figures and even animals and the forms of butterflies and etc. cetera wouldn't that tell us that definitely there is some sort of mathematical background there that God uses that can be repeatable, can be sustainable, and even seen throughout creation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is a good question. So this is a, the idea that like, God is a mathematician, and you can look at like the Fibonacci sequence, and you can see it in, in nature, and it's like this, this is like evidence God is a mathematician. Um, certainly we have mathematical order and structure in nature, I think that is telling us something deeper about God. Um, where I'm a little bit more cautious is when we introduce things like I, like imaginary numbers, I'm not sure if that actually exists somewhere, like if there's an I in nature somewhere, right? But, but the fact that our human minds are able to reason in this way, and then that, that, that reasoning can lead us to these, the math we need to describe the universe, that's saying something about what it means to be human. So independent, I'm trying to be agnostic on the question of does mathematics exist in some profound way, other than a human creation, um, you can think it, it does or doesn't. I'm just saying the fact that we can do mathematics, that's saying something really profound. Okay, let's get a few more questions for the back. I just, I wanted to make a comment, and they were asking about the, um, the void, and the, the void was here mm-hmm. before the earth was made. There's a void the deep, and it says waters. Mm-hmm. I wanted to refer them to the work by a guy named Robert Gentry. You know, he's a, phys- a physicist, happens to be an Adventist. And he pointed out that radioactive decay in the granites, which are the bedrocks of the earth, were um, captured instantaneously in the granites. When I saw that, that sort of changed me from a Theo evolutionist Mm -hmm. to a creationist. Mm -hmm. And his son is here at the conference. So Robert Gentry is the guy whose work you should look at. Great. So you might want to pursue that and see what kind of material he has there. That sounds fantastic. Let's um, get another one. Uh, In your last presentation, you you used a quote from Stephen Hawking that made reference to the law of gravity. Uh, When you made that comment, I was thinking uh, uh, that, well, you said that the law of gravity is, it doesn't have anything to do with creation, it's just... It's descriptive. It's descriptive. Mm -hmm. However, um, maybe when he was saying that, because you don't need math to model physics, it's definitely more efficient. So, for example, Maxwell's equations were initially like a 600-page thesis, Mm -hmm. but it boiled down to like four equations, which is definitely more efficient. Wouldn't one be able to say that because you don't need that math to do the modeling, that if you take away the idea that he said the law of gravity and you just make reference to gravity, that his statement isn't disproved, per se, by the argument that you used? Yeah, so we pointed out a number of um, logical fallacies with that statement. Uh, One of it was that he said because we have some law, which is some descriptive account of how gravity works, the universe will can and will create itself from nothing. But even if you, if you don't use the word just because there's gravity, that, that's still something. And so you have to give an account of where that something came from. Well, what is gravity? I mean, uh, What does it mean to have gravity independent of, of matter? Maybe you have some view of some Higgs field or something, but, but you still have some kind of field. You have something going on here. That So something still exists. And so it's not actually a demonstration of how the universe came from nothing because it's still positing the existence of something. And so that's something that something would still need some account of how it came into being. So I think that's how to respond to that. Let's get one more back here. Um, I have one question that kind of sounds like a bunch of questions, but um, this might be just a misuse of allegory, but um, there's a theory I heard of that, like, it relates to that story of the lost sheep, and they're talking about how we're the one sheep that was lost, like the earth mm-hmm. is the one sheep that was lost. And then there's all these other planets that aren't. And I was wondering, like, if we assume that is true, then, like, what do you think they would read the same Bible as we do? Like, would mm. they even need a Bible? Mm, mm, mm. I don't know. It's just something I was thinking. Kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think you're indicating here, um, Scripture does at times point to other creations outside of humanity. In addition to the angelic realm, you have in Job, the sons of God, being gathered together. This seems to be almost some form of Congress, of representatives from the different um, creation orders. You have in Revelation um, reference to various um, entities. And so, there is reference to um, creations outside of humanity. It's not clear to me if that means necessarily in our universe or not. So, I'm not going to try. Maybe maybe there are other, you know, it's not clear to me. Um, But you, then you ask the question of, do they read the Bible? And there's this fascinating line where Paul says in Corinthians that we are a witness before men and angels. And so Paul seems to have in view that humanity is on display before the created universe. So so creation as a whole, that all of creation is, is not just reading the Bible, but they're looking at our lives. Right, that the, the creation is like invested in what's going on here, because this is where God came down and condescended and took upon humanity, and this is where Christ lived and died. and was re- So, you know, something of supreme significance happened on this earth. Where Paul would say it's where the mystery of God was revealed, and so all of God's created beings, angels and other created orders, are in- intensely invested in what's happening on this earth. And so, I, I would say that our lives are the things that they're looking at, and the power of God to transform our lives. Uh, Ellen White refers to it as, she says, we are a theater of grace. So it's like we're on this stage on this theater. And and, and what's happening is the universe looks on to see how God's grace is transforming us. And it's just a testimony to the universe of the goodness of God. And that's just wild, that that as we live and as we respond to the grace of God, that we are having some kind of cosmic witness. Very good. Uh, Any more last final questions? Yeah, let's get one more. And then you guys can... I'll talk with you more one on one if you have more questions. Sure, mine was just uh, just a thought. I said uh, uh, um, as far as the, the the Eastern world or the Western world, us being Christian and and the ideas, but there's a large part of the world who aren't Christian. Mm-hmm. So, what have you come across? Any I guess we were talking about being made in the image of God mm-hmm. and the human dignity aspect. Um, in other cultures, do we find that same line of human decency throughout? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. So um, Romans indicates that God has written his law upon the human heart so that through, through the Holy Spirit pricking your conscience, everyone, independent of your religious background, can have some awareness of God's moral law, right? And so if someone who's not a Christian is, is acting in a moral and ethical way, I'm not like, oh, how is that possible? It's, no, this is praise God the Holy Spirit's working on them, right? And we can appeal to that. And so I would expect and I believe we do find across the world in all cultures, we have some prompting to and responding to the moral law of God. Um, However, you do find, you know, be it caste systems or other systems around the world, um, a devaluing of human dignity. Right. And so I think that Christianity really did offer something of significance. And not just Christianity, um Judaism as well and to some extent um Islam and other Abrahamic faiths have this idea, uh, brought something of immense value to societies. Um we didn't always get it right, and I was pointing out, you know, we didn't always live up to that idea ourselves and, and we need to be honest with that history. But having that ideal was something we could appeal to as people like Martin the King did, and allow us to overcome some of our prejudices. Well, let's end there. I'm happy to continue to talk more one-on-one if you guys have any more questions. And um, enjoy your lunch. This message was recorded at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, Visit us online at gycweb.org.